Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply, understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. You know, somewhere near the end of last week's podcast, which I greatly enjoyed presenting to you, I think I said something like, I won't say what we're going to do next week. It seems to be good luck not to say, because we'd had some good luck the week before, as regular listeners will know. But really, that was a misstatement on my part, because we always knew, or I always should have known, that it was mailbag week this week. So it is mailbag week. And I guess it was. I hope it was good luck that I didn't say anything. Maybe, maybe that'll end up being true. We've got, as always, a nice motley assortment of notes and questions that I'm sharing with you this week. It is the September 2017 Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. Let's get started. Mailbag item number one. This one comes from Daniel Scruggum. Daniel, I'm pretty sure you've appeared on this podcast before because I recognize Daniel Scruggum in Knoxville, Tennessee. I am 15 years old, you write, and have gotten so much out of your podcasts and books. I also appreciate all the great articles at fool.com. Well, we appreciate any 15 year old who's getting started thinking about your future and about money and investing. Uh, we deeply appreciate that here at The Fool. We're trying to get as many young people started as possible. We've started kind of a full school um, here where people can come and bring classes here. We have students who come through here and learn, but we're definitely going to be growing kids and in investing and full school in future. And Daniel, maybe you'll be part of that. Anyway, your question is I have a short question you say about market timing. I know that no one can time the market, but what about? Limit orders. I personally have done limit orders on all three of my stock purchases, and they've all gone through. Was this foolish or foolish? That would be small f or capital F. Have you ever done limit orders, and would you recommend them versus market orders? Thanks for answering my question. Well, this one's a pretty easy one for me, Daniel. I probably briefly flirted with using limit orders early in my investing career, not very far from the age of 15. At which you find yourself these days. But since I didn't even get started placing my own orders till I was 18, you're already three years ahead of me. Good job. I just found that limit orders weren't that necessary. And um, so for 30 plus years now, I've just used market orders every single time. I think it's simple. I just like that uh, sending the order gets filled these days instantaneously, it seems. And uh, I'm not going to quibble about price. Um, Some people like to kind of set limits in their mind, like, well, I wouldn't buy it at $35.33, which is where it is right now. But if it hit 32, they say to themselves, well, that's why I'll put it in a limit order. Um, I'm not a big fan of that thinking because some of my best stocks never did drop from 35 to 32. As I mentioned in the past, Yahoo, which was a monster stock about 15 years ago, once I was thinking, you know, I'll buy it at 25. It was at 29. I've told this story before on Rule Breaker Investing. It was at 29. I said it's worth 25. It never went to 25. It went to the split adjusted equivalent of a thousand from 29. It became a huge multi-bagger, and I was I was the guy there with my limit order in at 25. So I don't like limit orders. I don't think it's really worth the time. But I totally understand if you'd like to use them, or for those who do. Like them, I will say this: I particularly don't like stop loss orders. Now, that's a form of order. Many 
dyed in the wool investors already will recognize this, but anybody new to investing, you should know that there is a way you can place kind of a an order below where a stock is trading. So let's just say your stock is at 68. You would put in a stop loss order at let's say 58, and the idea is, you know, if it starts dropping before it really drops, you're going to get out at 58. Here are two problems with stop loss orders. The first is just over the course of a week or a month, sometimes stocks just vacillate anyway. So something that's 68 might go to 58 for no particular good or bad reasons, just short term irrational trading, which is what happens every single day on the markets. And all of a sudden you got kicked out of that stock at 58. And then guess what? It was going to bounce back to 85 by the end of the year. And so you end up having kind of guaranteed. That you've lost money. We call those sometimes guaranteed loss orders because you're kind of locking in that it's going to drop, but then you're not going to be back for the upside, which is where the stock market and good companies head over the long term. So, two big reasons I'm not a fan of stop loss orders. One is that it's the guaranteed loss order joke that I've made in the past. The second is just I like to be a little bit more in control. I have heard sometimes stories from Wall Street where Wall Street can see where you put your stop loss order. So if it notices you've put that order at 58 and the stock starts trading down to let's say $58.50 and dips down to $58.10, sometimes the market makers might might this is conspiracy theory stuff but might notice that you have it at 58 and just kind of drop the stock a little bit or match up some orders so that they cause you to trade. That makes money for them and so sometimes you're kind of luring them to hit your stop-loss order and take it. So anyway, enough about stop-loss orders. You didn't even ask that question, Daniel. You did ask a good question, though. Keep learning. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. Mailbag item number two. Let's get into this one a little bit. I really enjoyed this note from Hal Frost. So, Hal, you started by saying, I have a few questions. Hope you'd be willing to answer. First is fairly easy. Will you be doing any book signings with the release of the new version of The Investment Guide? If not, would it be possible for me to mail you a book to be signed? And I'm going to answer that quickly, and then I'm going to give a little storytelling that he provides in the rest of that paragraph. But the answer right off the top, Hal, is that we don't really have a book tour per se planned. This is the Motley Fool Investment Guide in its new 2017 edition. We couldn't be more delighted that it's been updated. I know many of you have bought the book. I've seen some good notes about it. It's sold very well. We're very happy about that. We're excited. We want that book to sell. From here on out, every single year, we're going to keep it updated as necessary. Shame on us the last 12 or 15 years that we didn't do that. And people were buying the Motley Fool Investment Guide a year or two ago and would see stuff about like the Dow dividend approach and things that we don't really use anymore. So I kind of felt bad about that. And so I'm delighted that we have the book out there in stores. But it is a paperback book. Um, Simon and Schuster, our publisher, and really kind of mainline publishers go with book tours around big new hardback books. And these days there are far fewer book tours than there once were. So no real chance of a book tour for this book. But I will say this, Hal, since you've taken the time to articulate your wish, yes, please do mail in your book for it to be signed. Just drop us a note at rbi at fool.com. Uh, just include your return address. Uh, I realize others might be thinking, hey, I could do that too. Why wouldn't I just send in my book? And I guess the answer is, you can. If we start getting too many of them, though, we'll have to just start sending them back because we'll be overwhelmed. So maybe this is the little game. If you get your letter read on any future mailbag, you now have the right to send your book in and get it signed by me and my brother Tom Gardner. And if you can't make mailbag, then darn it, you'll have to maybe visit us at Fool HQ or find some other way for the Gardner brothers to sign your book. Anyway, let's go back to your note, Hal. You said, when I was 20 years old, I inherited some money when my mom passed away. My dad gave me the second version of your book to teach me how to manage the money. 
Now, granted, it took me four-plus years to get around to reading it, but when I did, it really changed my life by helping me understand how to invest in such a way that I could make the money grow and last, instead of just spending it down or saving it for a rainy day. I've since read many other investing books, but yours was the most influential. It was my first, and the one I go back to often. I'd love to be able to get a signature from you and your brother, ideally, in it, because it's so special to me. My second question is a bit more personal, so I understand if you want to keep the answer vague. How much did you worry about your own children inheriting money from you at 18 years old? I know you and your brother inherited money from your father at a young age, and you used it to help fund this company. Do you have any concerns about your children using the money for bad decisions, or do you just count on having raised them right? My own son, Hal writes, is turning two tomorrow, and I've set up an account for him. I don't know how much you invested for your children, but I give him the gift exemption from both my wife and me every year. Congratulations, by the way. That's incredibly generous and wonderful to hear. So, that's been $28,000 annually. Now, when he turns 18, that means I'll have put in at least $500,000, and it could have grown many times that size. Sometimes I think about putting it into a trust, but then other times I think about just trusting him to use his own judgment when he inherits it. I'm torn. And since you're in the same boat, I was wondering if you could give me some words of advice, even if they're put it into a trust. It's ironic I worry about it because, as I stated, how it goes on, I inherited a sizable amount when I was 20 and did not blow it on drugs or partying. But because he's still less than two years old, it's hard for me to tell what sort of path he's on in life. And I guess, as a new father, it's hard for me to be so certain that raising him right will be easily accomplished. Well, it's a great question, Hal, and it is a personal question. I'm not going to go deeply into a personal viewpoint on this. I'll just give some of the things that I've learned from what I've done with our kids. And, you know, one size does not fit all at all. Um, for me to give tips about how to raise kids, for some of you that might be spot on, for others it may not be helpful at all because we're all different. We have different cultures, backgrounds, expectations. So I don't want to be too prescriptive in terms of what I've done and suggest that it should be an exemplar for anybody else. Now, with that said, uh, the Gardner children were raised in what I would call a trust-based environment. So it was just the nature of our family, and the same thing that had been done for me as a kid to be trusted. So I didn't make a habit of going and checking to see whether my kids were asleep. Sometimes they were probably staying up playing video games. I kind of let that happen. Maybe that sounds irresponsible to you. In some ways, it probably was, but we trusted them, and we've continued to do that. And now they're all college age or older, and they've ended up being pretty good human beings. So I think it's worked pretty well. I would say a trust-based environment is also what we have here at The Motley Fool. We're the company that didn't ever care that you had to be here at 9 a.m. or punch out at 5 p.m., can't leave at 4.30 p.m. We don't really spend a lot of time doing that kind of hand-holding or we're the company that's, well, we're not the helicopter parents company. And so, I realize that not everybody is going to have that environment or that culture within their family, but you could imagine, since it, it's the one I was raised in, it's the one I gave my kids, and the one that my brother and I have given our company, and we, we feel like it's worked pretty well, I felt good about giving the kids money. Now, I will say this, I did invest for, for them from birth, um, but I set the age at which they would take it over at the age of 21, not 18. It's kind of interesting to reflect back on that, because I got my account from my dad when I was 18. And it was a little distracting during college. Um, I'm glad that I did have the experience of learning stocks that early. Um, not quite as early as Daniel Scruggum, although pretty early on. But as I thought about my own kids and the experience I'd had, I, I thought, you know, 21 is a little bit more adult. 
And so some of those questions you might have about how that child might spend that money at 18, some of those questions might, I submit, be clearer, Hal, when he or she, but in your case, he is 21, or you could even set it at 25, that, this kind of thing. So, I, I, I'm a big fan of investing for kids as early and as frequently as possible, and as well and foolishly as possible. And in our case, we made it part of their upbringing. We talked about the stock market. They, they didn't know how much they'd be getting, but they knew that stocks were good and that we were investing for them. And once they were adults, which you are when you're 21, arguably you should be recognized as such earlier. But once you're an adult, that money is yours. That's how we set it. That's what we did. I hope it works for you if you try it. And if not, well, don't come after me because I'm doing my best. And the fact is, every child is different. So you might even have the same setup for different kids and you might have different outcomes. So who knows? But there's my trust based answer. Thanks, Hal, for a couple great questions. The next one, mailbag item number three. This one came from Mike Morelli on Twitter, at BLMikeMorelli on Twitter, in fact. And you said simply, Mike, hey, I just started reading The Fool listening to the podcast. I'm a med student in my 20s and new to investing. My question is, when is it too late to buy a stock? I feel like I missed the boat on some of the Fool wrecks. Thank you. Well, a wag showed up. Oh, you know, like the wag, like somebody who's going to be funny. And the wag in this case, Mike, was Chris Hill, who I hope you've gotten to know through Market Foolery and Motley Fool Money and all other things Motley Fool. Chris suggested I use this answer, and I'm going to quote Chris here I'm sorry, Mike, but it actually is too late for you. Try Bitcoin instead because you've totally missed the boat on some of the greatest businesses in America, and you will never, ever, 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 ever catch up. Signed Chris Hill. And uh, Chris Hill doesn't do this podcast, though. He does enough other ones that uh, I'm not going to let that answer stand. I think the WAG has done a good job with his response, and I certainly agree with him. But putting it a little bit more straightforwardly and slightly less sarcastically, even though sarcasm is, as we've often said before, the wit of fools. I would say this to you, Mike, you have never missed the boat. Chris is right on that count. The only reason you're thinking that there is a boat is because you're thinking about what's already happened. And what's already happened doesn't really matter much going forward. And you, in your 20s, it's so great that you're getting started investing. Just think about your life here over the next 70-plus years. Do you think you've missed the boat on investing? Do you think you've missed the boat on the stock market? Do you think the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which over the last 100 years we can see has gone up around 9 or 10% a year and looks like, wow, what a run? Did I miss that? Do you think people were saying that in 1950? Maybe they were, but they would have been wrong. And I submit to you over the next 100 years or so, your life ahead of you, you've not missed the boat. The only boat you're going to miss is if you don't get on the boat. And the boat can be as simple as an index fund, just buying right along with Jack Bogle and his Boglehead fans, and just say, hey, I don't even want to pick stocks. Um, You could just buy an index fund. I feel good about that. However, I think a lot of us who are rule breakers and fools recognize that there is, I think anyway, a much better way to follow even than the index fund, and that is to buy the best companies, to find great stocks, and to hold them, to invest like a fool. So, yes, turns out it works. So, if you look back over the last 30 years, you're like, gosh, it really did work, and I feel like I missed it. But since you were not even born 30 years ago, Mike, good news, let's look ahead the next 30 years, and let's recognize that just getting invested, just close your eyes right now and ask yourself, 
what are the businesses that are the movers and shakers of our time, and that I think are going to be around in 10 years, maybe even in 20 years, and that I want to be a part owner of. I have recent investments, recommendations in Stock Advisor like 3M, which is a company, Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. Not much mining happening anymore for Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing, but that's a great company, a dividend payer. And I just recommended it recently. This company's been around for decades, and it's been a great stock, and I don't think I missed it. I just made it a brand new, fresh recommendation. So, everything from a company like that, or much more modern-day companies. You might think of something like Facebook, which a lot of people use on a daily basis and has been a great stock over the last 10 years. Guess what? Facebook's going to be around for 10, 10 more years, and you might want to get on that boat, too. So, the list of stocks goes on and on, and I should mention, I feel very comfortable with any stock that I've talked about on this podcast or is an active recommendation in Motley Fool Stock Advisor, Rule Breakers, or Supernova, I feel very comfortable buying any of those brand new right today, whether it's already been a 10-bagger, a 50-bagger, or is down 30% because, darn it, turns out some of my stock picks do go down, which unfortunately happens to anybody who takes takes risks out there in the market. But I think to sum it all up, the only missed boat will be the one that you chose not to board, Mike. And I don't think you're going to make that decision. I would highly suggest to start to mix metaphors. You look through the windshield as you drive forward, not in the rearview mirror at what's already happened. That's the best way to drive. Thanks for the note. Oh, and I want to mention before I go to mailbag item number four, speaking of stocks and stock picks, um, for the next week or so, my team over at Motley Fool Supernova is inviting fellow fools to access some of our latest research, and that's completely free. So, this is a free preview. It aims to give forward thinking investors a glimpse into some of our favorite investing trends, trends that we believe are shaping the future. So, if you're interested in hearing our latest thinking on topics like genome based drug discovery and interactive entertainment, simply head on over to Future. .fool.com. And I really do like that URL because it reminds us that everything is about what's going to happen next. And usually it's pretty good, despite what a lot of people think. So there's a shout out then to the future and to future oriented fools, future.fool.com. Okay, mailbag item number four. Let's call this one an unpaid ad for The Economist. This comes from Roger Doris, writing from Prague, Praha, Czech Republic, beautiful city. Hi there, Roger. You wrote, Hi, David. I'm catching up on the RBI podcasts, which are a great source of inspiration. Well done. And I especially liked your July mailbag item number five, if I recall correctly. And thank you for even trying to recall a past mailbag item number from an old podcast episode. Roger, very impressive. The daily news diet you were trying out with a subscription to The Economist to try and get the noise out. You spoke from my mind on this as well, hence this email. I'm on the same diet for approximately the last six months, and it works just great for me. That said, I'd appreciate if you'd expand further on this for the benefit of listeners who might think it will work out for them, too. So, Roger just includes three quick points about The Economist, all of which, by the way, I agree with, and I will briefly weigh in after reading these. Number one, The Economist offers a digital-only subscription that comes and includes a complete audio edition. Very handy if you're on the road a lot in the car, as Roger says he is. You can just listen to it, and it's reduced in price versus the print subscription. Number two, The Economist offers the Espresso app. That's a once-a-day, approximately 5 a.m. 
Greenwich Mean Time. Once a day, published newsflash with the five hot topics of the day. It takes less than five minutes to go through. Gets you well prepared for the day, in case you can't live completely without some daily news dose. But of course, The Economist's style is there. It's always short, concise, and simple. And finally, number three, Roger says, The Economist is simply the best newspaper on the planet. I'd call it a magazine in this country, but we'll go with your word, newspaper on the planet. Roger says he's subscribed for 10-plus years, not a single bit tired of it. It has all you need as a foolish investor from politics, business, economy, the arts, science, great special issues and features about every two to three months. He closes, apologies if this is advertising on behalf of The Economist, but as an investor and longtime consumer of it, I've just come to appreciate it. I think other fools will, too. Well, we'll assume that Roger Dorsch, spelled D-O-R-S-C-H, is not The Economist's man in Prague. But I'll say this, I agree with what you're saying, and you're reacting, Roger, to the mailbag item from the August Mailbag podcast, in which I talked about how I'd experimented July and August this summer, not reading any daily news source, not going and checking Google News frenetically multiple times a day, deciding I could spend my time better. Maybe it's that I've turned 51. I'm not 21 anymore. I'm starting to count my time and think about the value of it a little bit more. How much time do I want to spend on sometimes clickbait headlines, but just the sheer volume of news? How much does it really matter? And that's up for each of us to answer. That's a question each of us will answer differently. But for me, I'm happy to say that, yes, the experiment continues right through here into the end of September. So now, for three months, I've gotten away with just reading The Economist weekly. And I really do appreciate how it comes out Thursday here in the United States in the afternoon, so kind of ahead of the print. But it's a beautiful app on your iPhone or your iPad. And um, always the articles are well written, they're short, they're balanced. Um, I'm sure everybody's going to think there's some political motivation here or there, but for the most part, I just like the word economist because I love thinking economically. And that means both as a gamer who recognizes that in this world there are finite resources and time is one of them, and the choices that you make economically. There's a little bit of Henry David Thoreau here thinking of Walden. I think the first chapter, as I recall, of my reading of Walden was economy. So, economy that way, but also. Economists like economics, like the subject that some of us studied in school. I never think enough people can know enough about economics. I'm grateful for things like Freakonomics and other things that are bringing more attention to the subject. I'm distrustful of people who were in power, or might be in power, in whatever country, who don't understand economics. I think it is one of the great human sciences, and I highly recommend The Economist as a good, steady read, and frankly, a news replacement and a major time saver. To close this one, I found that it's hard for me to get through a full issue of The Economist in one week. I just don't read fast enough, and I'm trying to do too many other things, sometimes including playing video games till 3.30 a.m., which I did this morning. So, I have a highly motley life, so I don't read as much as I probably would like to. But I'll say this, when I do get through a full issue, I really enjoy it, and I try for it every week. So, there we go, an unpaid ad for The Economist. Thanks, Roger. Mailbag item number five. This one comes back, another reference to a past podcast, this about fractional shares. So, we talked some about which brokerage firms, which accounts you can buy fractional shares on. And I had a little bit of a misunderstanding in terms of who does it well and who doesn't. And if you're a regular listener, you already know that. I'm not going to go back over that ground. I just wanted to read out two tweets from Claire Wharton. Now, Claire is at the AK Dubs on Twitter. 
And I'm going to say something funny about Claire's tweets in just a sec. But first, let me just give them both, because for people who are looking for good deals or good accounts that will buy fractional shares, after all, if you want to invest $300 this month in the market and Priceline is over $1,000, you can't buy a share of Priceline, but you could if your account offers fractional shares. So, Claire says, David, in reference to the August 30 RBI podcast for fractional investing stockpile offers it at 99 cents a trade and the Divi app that's D I V Y for free. And Claire goes on with one more tweet David Divi also offers fractional ETFs, a nice graphical history of performance, some research content. P.S. I don't work for Divi. And what I wanted to say about Claire's tweets is that I looked her up and those are Claire's two tweets on Twitter, right there. That's all she's ever published on Twitter. Claire, you're off to a great start. I'm flattered to think you might have even opened up the account just to reply through Twitter. You can always drop us notes at rbi at fool.com. But Claire, you are on a roll with your first two tweets, so keep it up. I think you have the potential for adding lots of value to lots more lives if you just stay on that good roll. All right, well, I think I can just leave that one alone right there. I will just say, Stockpile, um, my producer, Rick Engdahl, was telling me before this podcast, Stockpile has a very user friendly um, approach. It's very attractive and a, a kind of a simple um, site. So take a look at it. Good UI. We like that at The Motley Fool. We try to improve our own user interface design here at The Motley Fool. We can always do better. Um, Divi is definitely one of those kind of free trading apps that appears pretty clearly aimed at millennials. Um, I haven't used it myself, but I'll say this if it's well done, then anybody at any age can use it. But Divi might be more familiar to some of you than it is to me. So I'll leave it there. Thanks, Claire. Mailbag item number six. Oh, but first, let me say support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple. It allows you to fully understand all the details and be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com/fool equal housing lender license in all 50 states nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. I was just reading some notes from some of our internal staffers here at the Motley Fool talking about how they were refying these days. It's certainly something that everybody should examine every five years or so, looking at your mortgage. One of our staffers was trying to find a new house and just didn't find anything better than what he was already living in. And so that became, rather than go out and buy a new house, he just decided to refinance his existing mortgage. So I don't know whether he used Rocket Mortgage or not, but if he had, I bet he would have felt confident about it. I can say that. Thank you, Rocket Mortgage. All right, mailbag item number six is from Steve Jenkins, a fellow North Carolina Tar Heel, I'm guessing, based on a few things he wrote in his notes. Steve, you wrote, Greetings from a satisfied Motley Fool Supernova, Rule Breaker, and Stock Advisor subscriber and fellow Tar Heel alum. You, Tom, and the Motley Fool team rock. Well, I'll say this I think Tom rocks. Tom has done a lot in the last few months to get some great stock ideas out to um, new members to our services through some of our discovery uh, products, if any of you have seen those. Um, anyway, I think you answered my question in the August mailbag podcast, but I wanted to confirm I read between the lines correctly in your first QA on that show. My question is, when investing in a Motley Fool recommended stock, is the Motley Fool preference or guidance to investors to check the box 
and automatically invest any dividends back into that recommended stock? I think your answer to the first question was yes, correct? Full on and go heels. Thank you, Steve Jenkins. By the way, if you're a Tar Heel football fan, and I know very, very few of you are, it has not been a great start to the season. There's something really tough about watching a team rebuild and then have a lot of injuries, have as many injuries in a few weeks as most teams would have in a season. And then what ends up happening? This is a brutal dynamic. You start putting people out on the field because you have to, who are freshmen who don't have much experience, and they're even more likely, in some cases, to get banged up or injured, and it's kind of an ugly dynamic right now. Uh, that can happen sometimes in a college football environment. That's kind of how I see Steve, where our team is right now. I wish them, as I always do, the very best. Well, when it comes to reinvesting dividends, I think it's a great idea. I think checking that box makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Assuming you don't need the money. I mean, after all, a lot of people are invested in dividend stocks because they appreciate that income. Sometimes they live off that income. As we get older, we start to favor those companies that pay us out a little bit every year. And if you stack up enough of those, you can retire pretty well, not do much work, and get checks on a regular basis from public companies that are also working hard to crank out profits and drive their stocks up over time. So I think it's a really neat trick. And the convenience of just having dividends instead of needing them, if you're at an earlier stage of life, just having them reinvested back directly into the stock is economical in time, and it certainly is going to compound your numbers a little bit better, right? Because when you're putting that money back into the stock, buying extra shares, you're building those positions, and if you hold them a long time, you're going to be a very happy capital F fool. So, I like reinvesting dividends. I'm sure there's some technicalities, and it won't work for everybody, but a question in closing I might have is, do you need dividend stocks? Do you want to have dividend stocks if you don't care about the dividends? Um, Warren Buffett, as has often been said, has never really paid a dividend at Berkshire Hathaway because he wants to take the money and just reinvest it in his own company on your behalf and grow it and grow the stock price higher rather than just pay some of it out just back to shareholders. Um, I've certainly said more about dividend stocks in the past, and I will have more to say in future. We want to keep moving here on our Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag this month. But Steve, thank you and good luck. Okay, mailbag item number seven. This one comes from Andrew. I just wanted to share with you, I made my first individual stock purchase about two weeks ago. It's both exciting and nerve wracking. I had invested in mutual funds only up to this point, but I found your podcast. I started listening. I thought to myself, this makes a lot of sense. I started using caps, ka ching, bing, bang, bada bing. Good job. That's my own sound effect, Andrew, because caps.fool.com is one of my very favorite URLs on the entire internet. It is our free stock-picking site where you can come in, test out your own hunches, put thumbs up on stocks you think will beat the market, put thumbs down on stocks you think will lose the market. I use Caps every single day and have since we built it 10 or so years ago and launched it into the public. We haven't updated the interface in the longest time, so it's somewhat painful to look at or use, but darn it, I'm so glad that you went in. I saw that you even listed your handle on Caps and on The Motley Fool, your A-Train. I like that A-Train. Sounds solid. Let's take the A-Train. So, good job, Getting started, you said when one of my stock picks jumped 8% the day after I picked it on caps, I decided to just go for it and purchase some shares. Within a few days of making that purchase, I listened to the podcasts on how you do risk ratings. When I answered the questions on my pick, I got a risk rating of 16. Thought to myself, oh no, 
What have I done? Because those familiar with risk ratings, I hope everyone is, will notice that 16 is a very high number. The higher the rating from 0 to 25, the higher the risk. And I think the riskiest stock in the entire supernova universe right now is 17. So 16 is pretty risky. You said, oh no. You go on to say the stock is Tabula Rasa Healthcare. Ticker symbol TRHC. I'm happy to say it's up about 10% since I purchased it. I originally picked it because what the company offers sounds like a unique product that the world could use, I believe, could grow to be used nationwide. After listening to more and more of your podcasts, I think it is a very capital F foolish pick. So I wanted to say thank you for the lessons, and I hope TRHC continues to outperform. Regards, Andrew. Well, A Train, let me just say great job getting started. That was my main reason to read your note. I don't I haven't studied Tabula Rasa Healthcare. Um, looks like an interesting company. I'm excited that you took the time and turned what would seemingly be a fantasy game, caps, kind of like fantasy football, and you went right down there on the field and you went and played football. You bought the stock for real, and you're going to learn a lot from that. And my my hope for you is that you'll go on to buy a second, third, fifth, and fifteenth stock. I always want people, if possible, to get from zero to fifteen stocks as quickly as possible, so you have a good diversified base and you don't fret too much the moves of any one company. So there's your next dictate, A Train. Get after it. And finally, this week, mailbag item number eight. Hi, David. I finally make my first contact with you. I've been meaning to write to you ever since I heard my first Rule Breaker Investing podcast roughly six months ago. I've been a long-time fool and even longer-time small f fool. Nice. A long-time fool and even longer-time small f fool. This is somebody who gets it. Just wanted to share my capital F foolish journey and convey my thanks with this email, hoping my story may help someone else who's on the fence about investing. This, by the way, is from Sridhar Sriram. And thank you very much for taking the time to write this, Sridhar. I hope I pronounced your name right. You go on. Although I always enjoyed good stories about founders and companies, the stock market looked a little too risky, too unpredictable for my taste. My initial dabbles included outsourcing my money management first to a friend, then to a financial advisor. As you can guess, both attempts did not quite work out. After showing some initial promise, my friend managed to lose 50% of my portfolio in world record time. And the financial advisor referred me to expensive funds which never made more than the fees they charged me for the duration I held them. I'm so sorry to hear both of those things, but this is we're all learning as we go. So at some point after the 2008-9 crash, I started experimenting once again with the lofty goal of beating the returns from my savings account. Yes, I am known to be ambitious. Smiley. It was at this time that I happened upon Fool.com, and I've been hooked ever since. I love the way you guys invest in the businesses and the founders, and not just the stock. It immediately appealed to my love of good stories, as well as the need to beat my savings account. My learnings. And here they come. There are four of them, and I'll comment on each one as Sridhar presents them. 1. When you pay an expert for advice, also pay heed. My returns from the Motley Fool services, you mean in this context, are good but underperforming the services I subscribe to because I tend to second guess the recommendations or anchor, losing out on some big winners in the process. An example would be Tesla. And I guess my comment on this is I'm glad that you are paying for our advice. I like to think that we're experts, but I never use the word myself. I do want to preview we're going to be talking about experts next week in an outstanding guest appearance by Dr. Anders Ericsson, the author of the book Peak. I'm very excited to talk to Dr. Ericsson about experts and expertise. I would never call myself one. That's why I love the word fool. I'm a fool. I know you are too. 
Learning number two, Sridhar says it's okay to invest in winners. My largest winners are the ones in which I actually listened and, against all my instincts, invested in the winners again. An example would be Mercado Libre. Excellent. I think that's a point we pounded home on this podcast, and I certainly contributed it to Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast, Invest Like the Best, which I appeared on in the last month. Uh, It's still a contrary point for many of us, and it's because it goes against our basic human instincts. We tend to think what goes up must come down, and yet it doesn't look like that when you look at a stock market graph of the market overall, over any long-term period, or individual stocks that are great stocks. They tend to keep making new highs. That's why you should not be afraid of investing in a new high. In fact, you should be excited when you buy stocks at new highs, because chances are, for the good companies, the kinds that we invest in here at The Motley Fool, that you invest in along with us, great companies, chances are, they'll keep making new highs. Learning number three, Sridhar says you can actually make money in options. My initial attempt at options was spectacular. I made some real money real fast until I started losing even faster. It took me three years to recover those losses, but then I made all of it back using options, but this time, and this is a major plug for my colleague Jeff Fisher and his team, this time using Motley Fool Options, the premium service here at The Motley Fool, where Jeff and his team does such a great job and have taught so many people how to use options properly. Sridhar says, you guys taught me that there is more to options than just speculation. In fact, I would say Jeff Fisher taught me that as well. And finally, number four, you can earn while you learn. I have made a lot of mistakes in my journey so far and will continue to do so. I have a lot of big losers in my portfolio, some full recommendations, but many my own. However, the ones that cost me the most had nothing to do with financial skills. But then, thanks to all the advice I read on your website, I'm able to learn without fatally hurting myself financially, while also enjoying decent returns again, thanks to your recommendations." Well, thank you very much for sharing a portion of your own learning journey, Sridhar. I know a lot of us see parts of ourselves, I certainly do, in your story. I do want to mention, you close with one piece of feedback. You say, I love your services, transparency, most of all, your returns, but I hate your marketing. You close that with. When you market new services, it sounds like the stuff that you guys incessantly advise fool them to be wary of, etc. Long emails highlighting big returns, these kinds of things. Well, I, I want to comment briefly about that as we close this week's Rule Breaker Investing podcast. When we think about marketing and we think about what anybody's trying to do to get you to sell a product, the way that I think about Motley Fool marketing and how it's evolved is that we're kind of like movie trailers. You know, when you go to a movie that has some action in it, it's never like the trailer, is it? It's always better than the trailer. That's the good news. But the trailer has explosions, it has excitement, dynamism. Every two seconds, it's another shot, another angle. It's very exciting. And that's kind of the way that Motley Fool Marketing, as it turns out, has evolved. We kind of show you what I think of as the movie trailer version of the services. Now, I know many of you are subscribed to a Motley Fool service, so you know the actual experience of the service, which I hope is delightful for you. And if it's not, please let me know how we can improve it. But one of the things we've discovered about marketing is that investing, unfortunately, is not top of mind for many people. So we need to show some fireworks. We need to show, well, in our case, some big numbers. Um, The good news is, we have some big numbers to show. The bad news is, big numbers can get lost, because other marketing 
out there on the web. We'll be talking about big numbers as well. And while I truly have enjoyed the 50 plus baggers that I've now picked multiple times in our services, I guess anybody else can kind of make up that they've done this or that and it looks like a big number and they all kind of wash together. So the numbers actually don't really move people that much. As it turns out, it's more emotion, as our marketers have learned, that really move people. And it takes quite a lot to get people to to move toward the stock market. So, I do feel like it's overweening at times. We do our best. Sridhar, so while I understand your viewpoint, and I can certainly see it, and I have had similar reactions in the past, I think that Motley Fool Marketing today is better than it was five years ago or ten years ago. We're going to continue working toward making it better, more informative, and I think we are getting better. But I want you to know, at the end of the day, we're highly numerically driven here. We are a small private company, a for-profit business, and I have been astonished by the differences between a nice, well-written, polite, three-paragraph note, sending that to a thousand people, versus one that looks a little bit more like a movie trailer. You would be astonished if you saw what we see, which is the degree of responsiveness that you get to the latter. It's not to say that our services themselves are all movie trailers, not at all. We're very business-focused. We love these companies. I think that comes through in our marketing. But I just want you to know that it's something we're always going to keep working at. But at the end of the day, what I think is most important is the actual experience of the services themselves, the onboarding that you get when you join a Motley Fool service, the real actions you start to take, like A-Train's been taking by actually buying the stocks themselves. And that's what we're most of all committed to in a great experience. So, um, there's a little bit of and justifies the means to my thinking, but it's been disciplined by 20 years of being an entrepreneur and trying to see what works out there and always asking, you know, what'll drive more people to find investing through the Motley Fool? What makes the most fools? So, again, it's all a work in progress. I absolutely appreciate you sharing your viewpoint. I hope you've appreciated hearing some of mine. There are many different Motley minds here at work and different viewpoints here internally at the Motley Fool, and there always will be. We're the same way with any stock. Somebody's a bull, somebody's a bear. All right, as already presaged, next week I'm very excited to be welcoming the author of the book, Peak. Well, actually, one of the two co authors. This is Dr. Anders Ericsson. He and I will be talking about expertise, about human potential, about practice and the best forms of practice. I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation because we're going to be talking about how to think and act better. And that goes for investing, business, and life. In the meantime, we bid adieu to September, and I bid adieu to you. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.